welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. Hi, welcome to Clean Tech Talk with your host, Michael Bernard. I'm here today with Paul Werbus, PhD, co-director of the Center for Intelligent Optimization and Networks. Did original development of backpropagation and of adaptive dynamic programming, key technologies and approaches for machine learning in the 1960s and 70s. He was a Brookings Fellows in the office of Senator Specter during the Obama administration and was responsible for climate, energy, and space policy. And, of course, he authored the foreword to the recent clean technology clean technica study that I helped uh, that I wrote machine learning a transformative clean tech and climate technology welcome paul i'm really glad to be able to help out in your effort because to be honest i think the survival of humanity might depend on you guys and and that may seem like a bit of an exaggeration but it's not uh, i've i've learned the hard way that we are in trouble and the usual mechanisms to get us out of trouble are not working very well. Uh, People who have experienced COVID know that sometimes we need something better to solve a tough problem. In that one year I worked with the Senate, I worked for a Senator Specter who had the balance of power between Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. That's why I chose to work for him. And I worked for him on the year when the U.S. tried to do climate legislation. And that was an incredible eye-opener. Even by the end of the year, I didn't understand all of the challenges we face in climate, but it was a good start. And I kept paying attention to these issues afterwards. I learned that Greta Thornburg is right. In 2009, I didn't believe that the survival of the human species was at stake. But from some of these hearings on the science of climate change and some of the NSF talks, I found out that actually our survival might be at stake. So I did a lot of reading and I have some videos up on YouTube, but the bottom line is, Greta is not exaggerating. There is hard science, which she doesn't know, which really shows we better address this climate thing or we're all dead. It's not an exaggeration. And the real question is, what can we do about it? The other thing I learned working in Washington is that our present policy system for climate change is a total disaster. This is the other thing Greta Thornburg says. I actually think it's good that we did not pass the Obama-Waxman bill. There are people I know who would say that's terrible. It was an effort to solve a problem. Yes, it was. But I looked at the price tag. The Department of Energy and the EPA scored the bill. They measured the price tag. They made predictions. That bill cost 100 times as much as what we had to pay to get the same results or better. And the funny thing is, the Europeans did take those kind of measures. There are these Paris agreements and COP25, and Greta is right. They are grossly ineffective, hugely expensive, and the question is, how can we get something cost-effective? 
And where will it come from? The lawyers and politicians are not giving us cost effectiveness. They are not thinking about the optimization problem of maximizing the probability we survive at minimum cost, at minimum delay. They aren't thinking strategically about this kind of optimization problem. But who can think about optimization problems? Who knows the right way of thinking? And the answer is you guys know the right way of thinking. And that's why it's important that guys like you start playing a larger role in developing, deploying, supporting, and explaining the new technologies which can allow us to solve the climate problem at a much lower cost than what the lawyers are ready for. So anyway, that's why I'm glad to try to help you guys as much as I can, because our lives depend on it. Well, yeah, and there, there's two or three things here. I mean, the um, let's, let's pull apart the lives depend on it part, um, because there is a significant risk associated with this. It's higher than the risk of us getting hit by a world-busting asteroid in the next hundred years, for example. Um, you know, it's higher than the risk of the uh, Yellowstone caldera blowing up, because there's major systemic things which are leading to two major things. You know, you and I have talked about this. Um, once before when we met and, you know, because some of our uh, people we know introduced us. The, the first one that occurred to me, of course, was the challenges around oceanic acidification. Um, we have a significant potential for um, an oceanic die-off, um, which is associated with mass extinction events. I've talked to the MIT professor, whose name, as always, escapes me, who focuses on that. Um, you know, he, he talks about the challenges related with, um, car, you know, carbon dioxide peaking in the ocean and the correlation over the previous mass extinction events. And so he's concerned about threshold events for oceanic acidification, which I think is reasonable. But you've got a different concern. You know, I can never remember how to pronounce the name of your specific concern. Um, remind me of that, that specific okay. one you're focused on. Okay. So... We need to work on the solutions, but when it comes to the problem, I, I really have taken advantage of everything we had at NSF to dig in, to get past the BS, to find out what we really know. And, and by the way, folks, that's the National Science Foundation. Uh, Paul, I think I forgot to mention this, but you were a program director at the National Science Foundation for you know, a couple of decades as well. Yeah, yeah in fact, almost three. Um, and... Mainly, I worked in the technology areas which would solve the problem. Machine learning, electric power, also some quantum technology. But in this case, what really opened my eyes on a visit to NSF from the Senate, there was a talk by Peter Ward. Most of the people in the political world have either not heard of this extinction threat or they have gotten it secondhand. The primary source is a book by Peter Ward. It's only about $7 from Amazon called Under a Green Sky. I was introduced by Peter Ward by the head of the Geosciences Directorate of NSF. So this is the number one guy at the National Science Foundation to understand what's really going on in the Earth. This was a talk. The director of geosciences introduced Peter Ward as the number one expert in the world on the mass extinction of species on the Earth. And in his talk, he described five to ten times in the past when the levels of H2S poison and radiation were so high that they would have killed every human on Earth five times over if humans had been alive at those times. And there are very interesting stories. I won't bore you with them, but there's a whole lot of amazing past history on this planet. And at the end of his talk, Peter Ward said, by the way, I looked at those numbers. I measured the numbers. Peter was the guy who measured the numbers. And when I look at the numbers, and I look at the graphs, it looks like we're ready for number six or number 11. We seem to be following that path. 
He said, yeah. my gut feeling is at the present rate, you know, we will all die. Yeah, folks, uh, H2S is hydrogen sulfide. It's a gas. It's commonly found during the drilling production of crude oil and natural gas. And also the uh, microbial breakdown of organic materials in the absence of oxygen. So, you know, anaerobic decomposition subjects I've covered before. Um, And it's a question of how it accumulates in the atmosphere, as I understand it, Paul. So in parts per billion, you have smelled it. (laughs) We have all smelled H2S from rotten eggs or marshes. But well, we're talking about a concentration which is enough to kill every human. And the, the, I don't agree with everything in Ward's book, however. And this is one of the things that upsets me. In, in a world where people think like lemmings, they would say, oh, Peter Ward had a theory in his book that there are two things that will cause this mass extinction event. One of them is stratified ocean, and the other one was something about acid ocean. I looked closely at his book and at his sources. And in his book, he says, I am not a geochemist. We need someone to look at this who knows about fluid flows, partial differential equations, and all that kind of stuff. We need new research because I'm not so certain about my theory about that second trigger. It turns out I know these partial differential equations. And at NSF, we had plenty of resources. And he cited people. And my conclusion at the end is it really takes two triggers. One trigger is the stratified ocean. The other trigger is nutrition. If you want little creatures to grow in the ocean, these creatures need low oxygen and they need food. And there's a huge literature studying microbes, not Peter Ward's area. In the study of microbes, there's a huge literature that what you need is nutrition and stratified ocean. The scary thing is that we are moving towards stratified ocean. There is very hard data. It looks like 40 years. It might be more. Uh, Probably more is my guess. But right now, the curves look like 40 years from now, we hit stratified ocean. That means we have low oxygen areas that are big enough that if there's nutrition, these bad bugs that make poison are going to go nuts. And do we have nutrition in the ocean? This is the biggest thing humans have already changed. We have already put fertilizer into the ocean on a scale nature has never seen before. The fertilizers that humans are putting into the ocean are perfectly safe if there's a lot of oxygen. But if we have stratified ocean, low oxygen regions, and we have fertilizer, my guess is if that combination occurs, probably we all die. And And we do have fertilizer in the ocean. The way to think about this, folks, is that, you know, as uh, oceanic oxygen diminishes, anaerobic decomposition of all the biomass increases. Things can't live, so they die. Then they rot outside the presence of oxygen and rotting outside the presence of oxygen, that anaerobic stuff is what creates the hydrogen sulfide that leads to uh, euxenia. Is that, is that the word, Paul? Euxenia. Euxenia. And Peter Ward explains euxenia. That's the beautiful and true part of his book. His book, Under a Green Sky, is a mix of brilliant insight, solid proof, and thoughts about the future which he wants other people to think about. So for me, he's kind of like Greta Thornburg. He said something critical and true, but he passed the ball to somebody else to solve the problem. We are the somebody else. You and me, Mike. We're the ones who have to solve this damn thing. But the beauty is there are solutions. There are low-cost ways to get rid of this problem. We don't have to sacrifice our lives to solve this problem, but we do need to use our brains and try to work on these politicians to use their brains too, because there are technical solutions if we really use the best science and technology. So let's tie this to current events. Um, you know, right now the Democratic National Convention is on underway. Uh, we have uh, Kamala Harris as the vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden. Uh, no, I, I believe you're in the same room as Joe Biden. You know, a decade and a decade and a half ago, uh, once or twice. Um, that, that's an understatement. You're talking about my old friends here. Yes. Uh, Senator Specter and Senator Biden 
were very close friends. They would ride the train together. And uh, I only met Biden a couple of times. He probably doesn't even remember. Um, but it still was a great experience for me to be walking down the street, and there's Biden, and he walks up to me. And, and he reminds me of my cousins from Delaware. I, he reminds me so much of my cousins, but let me tell you the truth. If we want to save the world for climate, it's not Biden or Trump. I have hopes that maybe Kamala Harris might be able to pay attention and understand. It's not guaranteed because a lot of her friends are just as dumb as the COP25 people. And Biden is relying a lot on those people who couldn't produce anything. But Kamala Harris, my wife told me, don't underestimate that woman. Pay attention. And last week, that's exactly what I did. I learned a lot about her history. Her mother was an endocrinologist. This is pretty close to the neuroscience people I work with. And she's tough as nails. My boss, Senator Specter, was tough as nails. And Senator Specter was the only one who got past the BS on the left and the right. He was the only one who didn't want to support wasteful garbage that would throw money away, but he didn't want to support inaction. He wanted to support the legislation that would be cost effective because he was tough enough. He didn't just jump to conclusions. He studied it. I hope Kamala Harris will do that. And I hope if you guys do well, maybe she'll learn about you. And that could be what saves us. We need a whole bunch of pieces here. We need the good technology, but we need someone who's willing to learn something new. I hope she's willing to learn something new. That's so, my hope. So I, I have a form on uh, you know both Clean Technica and my other publications and this podcast series of being strongly in favor of Kamala Harris's um, climate change plan. Um, when I ranked the leading Democratic presidential uh, nominees, the candidates during the primaries, she came out on top. Um, she had the strongest climate action bill. It had um, not only targets with dates, but a plan for achieving those targets, which was an unusual combination. Um, she knew which levers that she would be, um, she would pull. She pointed to specific legislation. Uh, that she would use. She's, she was clearly aware of the role of the federal executive in United States governance and understood the limitations of federal power. And her plan respected that, unlike many of the others. Um, she also had a price on carbon, which from my perspective is a great broom. It will never be politically enough, uh, never be priced politically enough to be a single lever because you can't achieve that level. I mean, it's just a political football that gets used by um, conservative parties, typically in Australia and Canada, uh, to prevent it from rising to the levels it needs. But she had a price on carbon, so it's a good broom to sweep up all the corners of the room. Right. So you know, I hope to God, I hope to God that she doesn't listen to Van Jones. We had a lot of contact with Van Jones in those days, and we learned about green jobs. I hope. I pray that Kamala Harris is intelligent enough that she's willing to consider jumping to a higher level of greater effectiveness for less cost, because none of the existing choices that come from the political set are cost effective. And the people in the policy framework would say, who the hell are you? Why do you believe that? And let me explain who the hell I am. The two biggest sources of greenhouse gas emission from the U.S. are electricity and transportation. Yep. Okay. And the bottom line is, if you don't know the technology and economics of the electric utility sector, you don't know what the opportunities are. And these people who are proposing all kinds of tax and with all kind of weird approaches like the Obama bill that Biden was pushing, if you use those approaches, you miss the efficiencies you can get in a, at a technical level with technologies and getting rid of stupid regulations. Let me give you an example. I think the number one barrier to renewable electricity in the United States 
are the regulations for interstate electricity transport. Some people would say, oh, that's boring and technical. We're grand statesmen. We don't like to do boring technical. But boring technical is what brings electricity to your house. And I hope to God Kamala understands that boring and real can be real and reality matters. The regulations which prevent people from carrying renewable electricity across state lines, that's the number one problem. If Trump had been honest about what he said, he said he was going to get rid of those regulations that interfere with the economy. Well, no, that's not what he did. He got rid of the regulations that got in the way of his friends expanding old technologies. It's really strange. So let me give you a, a clear example. Well, let me, let me lean into that one just a little bit before okay, the, your next example. So um, when I reviewed Biden's plan, because Biden's climate change plan was among the worst of the leading candidates. I was not impressed. Um, it, it, no. did, it didn't have, um, once again, it didn't have targets. It didn't have a plan. Um, it was among the p- most poorly funded. Yes, we need cost effectiveness, um, but that doesn't mean it's not going to cost a few trillion to solve the problem. Um, and he has a, a maximum of two, two trillion. Second, and he didn't have the line items associated, the dollars associated with line items. He, you know, this is another thing I assessed. Um, you know, Harris's plan, you knew how much she was going to spend where and yeah. how, and that gave you a really good sense of prioritization. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, she Biden, seems to be an honest person who's willing to dig to get to the truth. Yeah. And no. Biden is like my Irish cousins. He's friendly. And it's good to try to be friendly and harmonious. But there's a time when you've got to dig to the truth. Yeah, no, Biden's plan um, had 400, 400 billion of the 2 trillion allocated, but it was solely to R&D, research and development. And that research and development oh. included, you know, small modular reactors, which we will get to nuclear reactors, so let's not get distracted yet. Okay. Um, um, and, you know, that included more for carbon capture and use and sequestration, which we'll get to later. Um, now, his new plan, but the other thing, what I wanted to lean into there with the interstate transmission of renewable energy, your point, his previous plan had um, a very good, interesting approach, a response to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative by putting um, high voltage transmission, which is unstated, but I assume to be high voltage direct current transmission lines down through Central America to link the Americas for transmission of electricity. And I thought that was a pretty good thing. It was a regionalization. It was a good foreign policy counter. It was an infrastructure thing. It you know helped the United States with its southern border challenge and the economics of the southern bo- of the states yeah. down there. So, so he lives in a word of in a world of laws and feelings. Laws are important, feelings are important. But from what you just said, he doesn't live in the world of numbers. Well, except that- And let me tell you about the numbers. I know these numbers. Let me just finish the point though, Paul. His updated plan actually dropped that. He doesn't mention that anymore. And what he talks instead about is making sure that interstate transmission of electricity works, of repowering the existing lines um, for greater transmission flow of renewables and putting transmission along federal right-of-ways. So highways and rail are federal land. And so, you know, one of the premises that was emerging was HVDC connectors across the United States for to allow the electricity from wherever it's being generated to get to wherever it's needed. So not clear on the regulatory piece, but aware of it and starting to get to the same place you were getting to. So that's, that's where I wanted okay. to get to at that point. So the, the example I wanted to give was from Pickens. And this is not just an illustrative example. It's more than that. There was a big Texas natural gas billionaire who wanted to put wind and solar farms in Texas and ship power to the East Coast. Pickens was even a friend of Senator Reid. At least he thought Reid was his friend. Not as good a friend as he thought. And Pickens had a plan. It depended on subsidies. It did not use the new breakthrough renewable technologies, which we have today. Those breakthrough technologies are critical to what we can do. He didn't have technologies that good, but even under the old technologies with 
incentives. He could have made money. He was hoping to. He was shipping natural gas around the country. He knew where to go to get approvals to build an interstate gas pipeline. Those were well-established procedures. And he said, okay, and I'll do that with electricity. And then the lawyers told him, you're not allowed to do it. I know. It's so weird. It's the Federal the Energy Regulatory Commission is allowed to do blanket authority for pipelines from Canada to China. And they can destroy U.S. Indian reservations in order to get natural gas from Canada to China. But if you want to send electricity to the East Coast to cut the prices and the pollution in the U.S., it's illegal to do it because of the laws that govern the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So Pickens went to Senator Reid and said, hey, this is not a level playing field. This is not capitalism. This is not the free market. This is a state monopoly. We have to change the laws to make it equal, balanced, and fair. The Edison Electric Institute supported him. I knew the Afro-American vice president of Edison Electric who tried to work with Pickens to get it through. But there are certain political parties that just didn't want to let electricity compete with natural gas. It's a state monopoly. And fairness would be enough to solve the biggest part of that problem, especially when we got cheaper new renewable technology, which could be used in places like Texas. There's a lot of R&D we could do to improve that technology. I don't want to understate R&D because there is new solar technology which could cut the cost in half. We don't need small nuclear reactors because we got nice, safe solar technology just waiting to be deployed. But there are these political barriers. And yes, we should be supporting the research too. That is a critical part. That's a good idea. Yeah, so let, let's just t- tear this apart for our listeners. You know, um, what I always say is that renewable energy works just fine as long as you have continent-scale grids and the ability for electricity to move around from where it's generated to where it's needed. You need a lot less storage than you think. Now, when I spoke to Mark Zed Jacobson um, of Stanford about his latest study with his team, which, by the way, gets into all the economics. I'm not sure you've read that study, but it's you know deep into the numbers of costs, and it's very enlightening. But the, um, the point he makes there is kind of twofold. You need actually very little extra transmission. You just need a bit to balance the grid across renewables. We need some investment, but not nearly as much as people think. The second point is, uh, Jacobson, to your point, uses the costs of existing technologies and the efficiencies of existing technologies only, even though he's projecting a 2050 piece. And in that context, um, if just using existing costs, high for lithium ion and very little little pumps, hydro storage, one of my faves, it's still vastly cheaper to run the economy of the world and the United States off electricity and renewables than it is to run it off gas and oil and coal. So I agree with him about the fundamental principle that we can solve our climate problems and make money if we are rational. If we think of it as a dumb jobs program, we're going to lose all that money and we are in real danger of people screwing it up that way. But from a technical point of view, if we do things right, and if we're rational, and we follow economic principles, we can solve the climate problems and make money by doing anything, by doing it. The cost becomes negative if we do things the right way. So let's I agree with Jacobson. Now, I would disagree with Jacobson about some points. Sure. Uh, He is a ray of light compared to these other people, but I have had a chance to see the real front lines. Not only did I run this research at the National Science Foundation, looking at all of these new technologies, after I left NSF for several years, I was very active in the Chile Solar Energy Research Consortium. In fact, I'm technically still on their international advisory board. I haven't been to Chile for a couple of years now, but I got to see all of what they're doing. They have purchase power agreements like three cents a kilowatt hour for solar electricity. Yep. Um, but life is a little more complicated than that. The, the most exciting thing I learned from the Chile connection and from the U.S. space community, from those two people, I learned about some new breakthroughs like conversion from heat to electricity. 
This is a technical field where we were at the cutting edge. There is a little company called Brayton Energy, and there's also storage, thermal storage. It is possible to get storage from certain types of solar farms, so you end up paying $50 a kilowatt hour. If you use the very best future lithium-ion batteries, it's 200. So you don't need the batteries. The thermal storage in the solar farm gives you the power to schedule the electricity at any time of day you want. You don't need batteries. You don't need to worry about following the load. If you have this kind of solar farm and you have the control that controls the thermal storage, you basically wind up getting power at any time of day for the price you used to get only for noontime. And, and that's why we need the new technology to be deployed. We need to get rid of the barriers to the new technology. It's more a matter of restrictions. But we also need research and development because, frankly, since the Trump administration put certain people in charge, uh, U.S. progress, we used to be the world leader. We're not the world leader. There are places like Dubai that are ahead of the U.S. in certain parts of advanced technology. Um, there are technologies we would have lost completely were it not for Bill Gates. So we have all kinds of elements that need to be brought together, supported. But we have the elements to make money by solving climate change if only we had a rational policy. And well, by the way, I only mentioned electricity. Equally important is transportation and agriculture. Let's get to transportation and agriculture. Let's finish off with electricity. So from a storage perspective, I agree with you mostly. Um, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time looking at the thermal stuff. Um, I don't think it's as interesting as others do. Um, but um, I agree with you on the price of lithium. But I, the way I'm perceiving it is the more I get into the storage space, I see kind of three time frames for storage of electricity. The first is in-day storage where you need, you know, fairly local grid SOPs that soak up um, peak sunlight and deliver it in the evening. And they're doing that on not just a pure cost of electricity, but a grid stabilization ancillary services benefit yeah. basis. And so that's what we're seeing with the, um, you know, the major Tesla um, battery deployments in uh, California and Australia. They're being used for same day firming and balancing not for the price of electricity. The second day stuff, I'm seeing you know, competing technologies, but the one that I see is most likely, um, highest likelihood is redox flow batteries. Um, you know, things like uh, the vanadium batteries that are going on, the uh, ferrous iron batteries that Bill Gates has invested in. And you know, the, um, the other technology, the, the um, much more neutral, uh, non-metallic, um, technology and chemistries of companies like Agora Energy Technologies up here in Brent, British Columbia. You know, and so these are the kind of eight, well, yeah, yeah. eight to 38 I, I, hours. I, I, I didn't mean to propose a silver bullet. No, and then it, what I also see, talk about one thing at a time. Energy then, storage is not only thermal storage for the grid. If we segue to transportation, for God's sake, uh, Electricity storage is very important to the future of transportation. Well, let me, let me finish off on that because I think the longer-term stuff is pumped storage hydro. I've gone deep and wide on this globally in the United States, and I've talked to um, experts around the world in Australia and the United States and uh, Europe about pumped hydro storage. It's dirt cheap. It works really well for you know the thir 24, to, uh, 24 hours to three weeks time, time frame. And it's easy to build. There's 200 times as much storage in the continental United States as is required for all grid storage. And that's only on sites that are um, on unprotected land, so not environmentally sensitive land, near transmission. That, those are the parameters of the Australian study. Um, and thermal has a place to play. The, the point here is more that Jacobson in his economic study said, I'm going to limit myself to what's currently available and I'm going to make a whole bunch of constraint statements and it's still a lot cheaper. 
And he explicitly excluded all of these other technologies, which we know exist. Redox flow has been around since 1996. Um, pump storage hydro has been around since the 1890s. Um, he did not leverage those to anywhere near the extent that they can be easily leveraged. So the point there is that this is a solvable problem. We, we know how to, you, you've identified one of the inhibitors, which is regulatory stuff in states. Texas is a very interesting case because um, they've traditionally, like Ontario, been, you know, like Ontario and Canada and other countries and other jurisdictions have had a um, energy security policy of generating all of their needs internal to their borders. And that's led to the regulatory statements that prevent the transmission of electricity in many cases or the importation of electricity. It's, it's a archaic, backward-looking thing, and it's dissolving slowly. But it, that energy security concept at the sub-national level is actually one of the inhibitors to this, you know, the th exactly the thing you're talking about. That has to change, and it is changing slowly. Second thing I always like to say about Texas is, a decade ago, they had about 5% of all their energy from renewables, mostly wind. Now they have over 20% from wind and a bit of solar. And they've gone from being the worst grid stability in the United States, which is pretty bad um, compared to European countries. It's like terrible. Um, they've gone from being the worst to much better. Their, their grid stability has improved tremendously over the past decade. And guess what else? They're also among the cheapest electricity retail rates a decade ago, and they still are. Their electricity prices haven't increased. So I, I like to put out those data points whenever we talk well, about Texas. Well, you know, there are a lot of things we're interested in we could talk about for many hours. Main thing I have to do is make sure I don't get distracted by these other interesting things you're talking about. But let's talk they about are very interesting. Before we move on to transportation and agriculture areas, I'm very deeply interested in. Let's let's just put a nail in the coffin of nuclear and small modular reactors and molten salt reactors. Go for it. Okay, so once you reach the point where you can meet all the electricity demand of the U.S. for generation costs on the order of five, even eight cents a kilowatt hour. You just don't need to take risks to your national security. And my main concern with nuclear is the national security. I am deeply interested in nuclear physics and advanced nuclear technologies, but there is a real national security problem we should never forget and never underestimate. For three years, my main, one of my main jobs at NSF was to coordinate the interagency research on nuclear proliferation and terrorism. And God was that an eye-opener. There are things they don't talk about because it would be dangerous if the bad guys knew how close they are to killing us all. But the bottom line is, this whole nuclear supply chain, we should not be increasing the nuclear supply chain. We don't need to. We can solve our electricity problems without it. There is nuclear technology I'd like to look at, but, but to meet our electricity demand, we don't need to expand this stupid supply chain, which is the ideal way to help other people blow up the world. Um, I, I agree. I mean, when you and I, you and I had a meeting of the minds on this in our first call, I mentioned that you know one of my backgrounds was military, and I was always thinking about overlapping uh, fields of defense in any defensive position um, in any strategy. So you have to have, you know, trenches and you have to have wire and you have to have overlapping machine guns for defilating fire, all those types of things. Um, and the nuclear supply chain from the time fissile materials are mined, refined, shipped, used for generation of electricity, stored on site, and then shipped for waste disposal, every one of those steps is an opportunity for bad actors to get their hands on the material, not for necessarily um, explosive nuclear weapons, but for um, dirty bombs. Now, I, I just want to play out a scenario just to give this in context. We, we recently had that horrific experience in Beirut where um, fertilizer had been you know, dropped off, a, a Russian ship had limped into port, um, tons of fertilizer, were left moldering in a warehouse. Um, if terrorists had simply 
snuck in a few barrels of nuclear waste, you know, fairly low-grade material, all of a sudden Beirut would not just be suffering hundreds of deaths, massive destruction, and a 43-meter-deep um, you know, a new crater on their waterfront, as well as traumatized people. It would also be a radioactive zone and a massive opportunity for terror. A small, a relatively small fertilizer bomb with a relatively small amount of nuclear material creates a massive terror event. And, and this is your point. Um, we don't need actually nuclear weapons if we have dirty bombs in asymmetrical warfare. Yeah. By the way, um, another place I've discussed this with is Korea, South Korea. Yep. And uh, on YouTube, a couple of my videos are translated into Korean because they did them on Korean TV because Korea is very serious about a lot of these issues. Yep. Every nation in the world has a different electricity market. And that's one reason why we need to have intelligent market design. Governments shouldn't be deciding which technology should the world use. It's stupid because we have market segments. We need market competition. We need fairness and we need advanced technologies available. There's some places like the U.S. and Canada that have so damn much renewable energy, we don't have to worry about it if we have good policies. But then there are places like Japan and South Korea, and even a lot of Russia, where the economics are very, very different. And I've been over there discussing nuclear with the Koreans. And that was a hell of an experience. Was that prior um, to the um, realization that they had used substandard parts and the massive fraud had brought down not only the CEO of the major firm involved, but the prime minister? Or that I, I, I've actually had several visits to South Korea and in the past, I've actually had, and maybe even the present, access to some fairly high-level people there. And they're in a tough position. They are. Which is good, because it makes them want to think. And we need people who think. And they have the ability to think and the motivation to think. And they have some pretty good technology. But one of the big problems in Korea is nuclear versus other sources of power. And they don't have these big deserts of the Southwest. Well, let me put this in context for our listeners. So um, first off, um, South Korea obviously is bounded on a peninsula. And it's got North Korea. Um, so it doesn't actually have land connections to uh, jurisdictions to share electricity with. So that's kind of statement one. Statement two, they did go big into nuclear in the 90s. Uh, they built a lot of nuclear and they did it relatively cheaply, relatively, um, but they did that by building lots of nuclear generation facilities in dense urban areas. So most of their nuclear plants are surrounded by tens of millions of people, um, which makes the risks if, if a Fukushima event occurs higher. Uh, unfortunately, because it became a top-level federal st strategy, um, they ended up doing a lot of substandard stuff. So there's most of the nuclear plants now have... Um, a strong history of having uh, non-certified parts used in their construction. This led to the prime minister and CEO of the primary company involved all in jail for massive fraud, uh, a significant transformation. And then Fukushima happened, you know, in the neighborhood, as it were. <laughs> and so the incoming administration looked at that and they looked at the plummeting costs of wind and solar and they said, we're going to start shutting down our entire nuclear strategy. So South Korea has committed to eliminating nuclear over the next couple of decades and replacing it. Last point I'll make, Paul, is that Jacobson has looked at all those isolated areas. He's got 24 regions of, of generational regions, and he looks at those isolated areas like Israel, which has different challenges, Japan, and South Korea, and it's still cheaper for them to go renewables. I have not seen Jacobson's plan for Korea and Japan. It could be interesting. I'd be happy to look at it because I do talk to those people. Yeah, I, th I think what I'll, I'll do is, I'll, you know, if you haven't looked at his detailed report, he's got this regionalization and he's got the energy flows thing we're talking about. It's, this, it's the problem, how small a space can actually work off renewables. As we said, generation requires space, but the economics don't. Uh, what it's required 
to get to the point where a market will work efficiently with renewables is a big part of what we're talking about. Okay, so let's talk transportation. Let's pivot. Let's talk transportation. Okay, Go for it. Intro, intro the subject from your perspective, and then we'll bat ideas back and forth. The funny thing is, in, in 2009, when I worked for Spectre, I thought national security with energy was the really big issue. I didn't know how important climate change was. And a lot of people said, oh, don't worry about the security of your transportation fuel. And all the data I had said, we have a problem. And there are people who would say, oh, we used to have these problems in the Middle East, but don't worry, the Middle East is a place of peace and stability, there'll never be problems in the future. And I knew enough history to think that's pretty silly. <laughs> um, and I've had access to the models. So one of the things I was very happy with, IEEE. IEEE has had a policy presence to bring technical reality to the people in Washington. The political pressures of the last few years have kind of damped that a little bit, but until a few years ago, and maybe a little now, it was really critical that technical reality should influence people's choices when they start choosing crazy things that don't work. And at one point, IEEE decided we will look at this transportation sector. And one of the documents I'm really happy to have preserved on my webpage is the results of the IEEE USA study on transportation fuel security. In the early days, IEEE had lobbyists come to it who wanted to be like well, like the green jobs idiots, if you forgive me, the kind of people who had one issue, one silver bullet, and they said, your electricity, sell electricity. Tell Congress that electricity solves all problems everywhere and get rid of the rest of the world. And IEEE said, no, our com first commitment is to truth. We run journals and we run conferences and technical truth and integrity is our number one commitment and we're not going to lie to Congress just because our guys do electricity. So let's look at transportation fuel security. And IEEE had me give some talks to Congress. In fact, George Bush's people in the year 2007, I think it was, had me give a talk to hundreds of people in the Rayburn building. It was a very unusual situation on transportation security. Bush intended this to be part of getting ready for his Energy Information and Security Act, EISA. And nobody should talk about transportation energy unless they really understand about this bill George Bush got passed, the Energy Information and Security Act. It is very important, but it never lived up to what George Bush wanted because there were a million lawyers and lobbyists between George Bush and the real world that kind of screwed it up. And I helped George Bush's people get that bill passed because of the talk I gave representing IEEE. The talk is valid. His concept is valid. We still need to implement what he really wanted. The concept was, first of all, we're going to have a market-based solution. Governments don't tell individuals what to buy. But we need markets that are more competitive, more free, and more open. So instead of saying your only choice of fuel in your car is gasoline, which was imported from the Middle East and refined in, well, one or two places, um, instead of having cars that give you that only, let's incentivize the market so that people can have fuel-flexible plug-in hybrids. And now we would add electric cars as the batteries have improved. And the idea is consumers should have a choice. There are alternate liquid fuels which are good for the environment. There are ways to make liquid fuels that are neutral, carbon neutral. There are biofuels you can make that are cost effective, that are good competition, but there are also good opportunities for electricity. The role of the government is not to choose A or B. We said you get more payoff if you choose A and B. If you open up the market to the best you got, for alternate liquid fuels and the best you got for electricity, 
and you give consumers choice, and you push the technology everywhere. The technology for alternate liquid fuels goes way beyond what EPA will let you do. And, and where things got screwed up was they had people writing regulations to implement the Bush bill, and those regulations were totally screwed up. They got rid of all the best low-carbon options for liquid fuel. And for electricity, they didn't do as much as they could to really push electric transportation as hard as they could. There are opportunities in many levels. You mentioned batteries. Lithium-ion batteries, I think we at NSF had a lot to do with making that happen. There's a guy named Goodenough from Texas, a research professor, and his support, I believe his NSF support was critical. His breakthroughs in lithium-ion batteries were critical, but there are new lithium-air batteries that could be 10 times as good. We wanted to fund them, but then we got this new politics got in the way. So there are really serious near-term research options if we fund 10 of them, a couple of them are bound to work. It's like the vaccines. So there's a lot of breakthroughs we can have, both on electricity and on alternate liquid fuels, and we shouldn't be choosing at the government level. We should be pushing all the options and doing it rationally with rational market design. So a decade ago, I would have agreed with you, actually. Ah, okay. Um, what changed? Well, what changed is that, um, you know, as... You know, so one of the things I did last year was I went deep on synthetic fuels. Um, I went deep on the chemistry of creation of synthetic fuels and biofuels, the uh, use, the source um, molecules of carbon and hydrogen necessary for those. I went through the energy flows for all of that. I went through the uh, CO2 emissions of each of those. And you know, I compared and contrasted synthetic fuels to biofuels. Um, you know, using the best literature I could find, uh, to electricity. And so, you know, what I found was that electrically powered vehicles are vastly cheaper per 10,000 kilometers or 10,000 miles driven, and they're vastly lower CO2 emissions. And of course, they have no particulate or carbon black emissions. Um, you know, so the cost of solution is is there now the, the other thing that's important to know is one of the things i lean into is the national resource you know, nrel's um, energy flows diagram which i'm sure you've looked at a million times as i have it's the one that you know says here's all the primary energy and here's the transformation points here's the energy services we actually consume and here's these two-thirds of it that we throw away rejected energy you know 66 uh, quads in the united states last year roughly. Um, and the biofuels are much better than synthetic fuels. The synthetic fuels have massive amounts of rejected energy embodied. And it comes down to that efficiency statement. You know, the, the, the lower the gap between generation of renewables and consumption of the energy embodied in the electricity, the fewer steps of transformation, the cheaper and more efficient it is. So the well-to-wheel of electric vehicles is just vastly better with vastly fewer negative externalities than biofuels and other things. And that doesn't mean there aren't niche places for this. I'm not saying that we're going to not have alternative fuel vehicles. Um, but my analysis, and you know, Jacobson and I have talked about this as well, land transportation is going to all end up electric. And the lithium-ion battery is going to be the bulwark of that through 2030 to 2035. Other technologies aren't necessary for the vast majority of transformation. It's a recyclable material. So the batteries, we get most of the lithium back when we recycle them. Um, so this isn't actually a particular okay. challenge. Um, no, so so you're, you're saying electric cars are good, and I agree. And electric Let me emphasize... If, if I had been neglecting electric cars, the IEEE would have caught me a long time ago. But it's not only electric cars. It's electric trucks, buses, yes. and electric trains. So that's all oh, ground transit. And airplanes. And airplanes for short hops. Now, this is oh, a place. No, no. See, there's a lot of new technology coming. Oh, I, one, I don't one, dispute. But the, uh, the, when one of the most important set? things in this game, it's like the stock market. If our national climate policy is as conservative 
as the people who put all their money into these conservative funds that only fund 100-year-old companies, that's a good way to lose your shirt. Yep. The problem is, for an effective, optimal <laughs> climate policy, we get our security through diversifying the portfolio, not by picking a silver bullet. And I agree that electric transportation for ground vehicles is the number one most promising thing. And of course, there's a lot we got to do. I spent a lot of my life funding advanced technology to reduce the cost and improve that. And I know we can do it. I know it'll work. I know we can do better. But as a government type or policy person, we need a certain kind of free market principle to keep the door open in case other guys do better. And there are possibilities where other people might contribute, at least for some regions. Um, we got to be careful about the role of the government with a fair competition and developing new technology versus the role that we would have if we were going to do a research program ourselves. Um, as the last time I wanted to fund somebody and couldn't anymore because of the new governments, it was this guy with a lithium air battery, who, by the way, was Afro-American. Uh, and his battery could have made this Tesla stuff look like child's play by comparison. We can do better, and it's high risk to try to do better. But, but damn it, if you do 10 high-risk things, 50% probability, you're probably going to win in the end. Well, I, I'm going to actually push back on a couple of points. Okay. So one thing you talk about, like new solar tech. Um, I published recently, um, you know, a big thing saying, let's stop talking about new solar chemistries. Um, and I looked at the machine learning stuff for exploring new perovskite, uh, you know, combinations for cells. A study that recently confirmed what I um, suspected for probably a decade. What has dropped solar panels price is not technology. It's not the chemistry is getting better. It's global supply chains and global economies of scale in manufacturing, distribution, and logistics and construction. 80% um, of the reduction of wind and solar is coming from those things, and only 20% from technical advances. So, you know, as we think about that, you know, one of the things I always say is we have 95% of the technical solutions today, we just have to implement them. The 5% we need to solve for, there are edge conditions. Um, you know, getting cost-effective uh, cement is a big one. It's low carbon. Um, Long-distance air transportation is a big one. Long-distance ship freight transportation is a big one. Those are hard problems. Yeah. But, so let me say, in, in, in the year 2009... But I, let me finish the last thought okay. on this. The last thought is, what I have seen especially on the conservative side of the aisle, is we will innovate our way out instead of implement our way out of this. And they use the research and development assertions to delay actual implementation of the solutions we have. So the, there's a, uh, I don't disagree with you about the need for research. I don't disagree with you at all about market-based mechanisms. I don't disagree with you about assuring that we find the solutions for all those edge conditions. Where I'm talking about those more, what is the effective mechanism of driving rapid change today and in the next decade to 15 years? And stuff that's in the research um, uh, laboratory today is gonna take a long time to get to those massive economies of scale we need for the solutions. So what I've seen is the rhetorical use of research and development to delay effective action. And, and that's a nuanced no, statement. Got it. Well, I, I'd say the biggest problem with the Republican climate and energy policy is basically lying about doing what you say you're going to do. Donald Trump said, I'm going to reduce the regulations so we have a competitive market. That means the, re the laws which govern the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and the first thing he did when he came into office is instead of making it easier for guys like Pickens, he started hiring people who put in new regulations where you had to use coal. Okay, so they were doing the opposite of what they promised. That's the problem. I think there are some honest Republicans. I hope we see some of them running for office. I think Kasich might be honest. He seems honest. But 
On the other side, yes, you're right, there's a huge problem. But there's a problem on the left, too. You go too far to the left, you can get screwed up. And I've seen a lot of that. After all, when Specter became a Republican, we were reporting to Obama. We got to see this line of reporting. And, and we get to see how the green jobs movement was preventing efficient technology. It was really a nightmare. So yes, we have to deploy. But when you want to deploy the wrong things too soon, you get to the white elephant syndrome. Let me give you an example, a very important example. If you want to have electric cars used to the maximum, the maximum that the market wants to do, not forcing it, if you want the maximum use of electric cars, the biggest question for ordinary customers is, can you drive 200 miles? Can you visit your grandmother? You know, what happens? What is your range and what is your recharge? And the old recharge stations, which the lobbyists loved, there was a Japanese model recharge station, probably what Tesla's doing, where it takes half an hour to recharge half your battery, and then the lifetime of your battery declines. If you talk to people who have electric uh, Honda vehicles, they'll tell you, yeah, if you recharge in a mere half hour too often, your battery dies. Meanwhile, there's another technology which involves things like titanium in one group and yttrium is another. The Chinese have another battery technology, which Mr. Tesla doesn't seem to know about. He doesn't know what the competition is coming down the pike. Well, they have batteries which can do it in 10 minutes and last 200,000 miles, and they're ready to mass produce and sell to the U.S., and we are not developing the U.S. capabilities to be able to compete. And we need the kind of R&D that would let the U.S. stay competitive. And we better be ready to buy these better Chinese cars if they come on the market. But it would be nice if we did the R&D so we could do the same kind of stuff. Well, I'm going to push back on you on a couple of points. Um, okay. So there are now Teslas with 300,000 miles on them and 7% battery degradation. And what length of time to recharge? Uh, I know they're recharge stations. It depends well, on the voltage and the average. And this is what I wanted to talk about. If but you Paul, fill the whole damn country with the wrong voltage and the wrong amperage, you are creating a barrier to the deployment of the better recharge strategies, which require the new batteries. So if, if you may. go too far on the wrong recharge stations, you're committing yourself to a white elephant. It's like the old Betamax recording. I, it, I, just, I just told okay. you, though, that... so. 95% of cars are charged overnight in low-speed low chargers. Tesla is the only company which has implemented high-speed chargers. They've implemented them to allow people to drive between cities. And the people who use superchargers regularly, like the people who have the Tesla shuttle from LA to uh, Vegas, um, are not experiencing massive battery degradation, and they're achieving you know, reasonable round trip times. We're now seeing um, crossing the United States in uh, cannonball runs in 38 hours. It's about 10 hours more than a cannonball run in a gasoline powered vehicle. These are extreme edge conditions which are not served by this. Second statement, we have a massive global supply chain for lithium ion batteries. And once again, it gets back to the economics of the supply chain the scaling, it takes a long time to scale a massive global supply chain. I'm not against new battery technologies, but preventing ourselves from using the technologies we have, which work and which are cheap to deploy, um, does not prevent us from moving forward. Third point I'll make is that a lot of the battery management challenges are related to inferior computer control of the charging process. Um, you know, an electric car has the three components. It has power management, the battery, and the, and the motor. The power management component, that's where most of the innovation, a lot of the innovation has occurred. And Tesla is, power management is among the best in the industry. Any new technology is still going to require innovation across those spaces. And we don't have the um, advanced, um, iterated, engineered power management for many of these other technologies. So I don't disagree with you, Paul, about new battery technologies coming down the pipe. 
But the industry, even the battery experts I've spoken to say, yeah, we're going to be on lithium ion for the next 15 years. It's going to take, we, we have not got to the end of the lithium ion technical cycle. And it is the solution for today. So arguing against what will, will help us achieve the targets we need for climate change, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's the right stance. I, I'd say argue for more for keeping ourselves open to the new battery technologies. But, you know, I also pay attention to the Chinese electric car market, and they're using lithium-ion as well. Yeah. You know, we're not so, getting... So, so let, me, let me emphasize, I, I'm not... I wasn't arguing against electric cars, but I think it's important an efficient climate strategy has to do the best it can with many threads. When I was at NSF, there were people who would come and say, what is the project I should do research on to get funded? And I said, damn it, we need more than one area. Here's a list of 20 things. I actually published a paper, which was cited in the White House National Grid Policy under Obama. It has like 20 projects and we got another 20 more. A rational strategy does not pick one of the 20. It moves ahead on many fronts with a recognition some will win, some will lose, and they'll come together. I certainly agree with you that the power management is one of the critical areas for development, deployment, and for advanced research, because we know very well that power management is one of the areas where there are huge opportunities to do better. And one of the reasons why electric transportation can contribute a lot more than you would believe if you just looked at the old cars that they were selling five years ago, because we do have new technologies for power management that can improve the efficiency and reliability and lifetime of all of these electric type cars. I put a lot of my money into that, and I know of opportunities for improved power management beyond anything you have seen so far. So there are, yes, there are important opportunities and um, power management is part of them, but batteries are part of them, and different batteries can take different recharge schedules. Anyway, that's probably all I ought to say right now. But yeah, the IT industry is important to this because batteries are part of laptop computers. And when I started funding power management and batteries, I learned early in the game that there are a lot of people connected to the laptop industry who understood the realities of batteries better than any of these people who will tell you about cars. It, it's really amazing, the flow of information. The IT industry has pushed to the limits of technology just because of laptop computers. They know things about batteries that can be transferred to the transportation sector. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,